to, uh, Lord willing, hear the continuation of the study in 1 Timothy from Sunday evening here on Sunday morning, and therefore we are not going to have service this evening. So in light of that, uh, to further confuse you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a rather large passage, uh, verses 1 through 16. Would you read that? I'd like to ask Aaron Wells if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman without man, nor man without woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with the head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, this is an unusual message for New Year's Eve, to be sure, but it is a continuation of the... Um, uh, the 10-foot pole. Uh, for those of you who were here last Sunday evening or who've uh, heard the sermon, this is a continuation of the 10-foot pole that I've taken up to, uh, to touch the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we will return this morning. But we're looking at another passage that we alluded to last Sunday evening, one of Paul's uh, uh, clearest teachings, or at least his um, uh, most thorough enunciation of his views of the role in men and women in the church. Now in the conservative church, in reform circles, evangelical circles, there's a great deal of lamentation about how the role of the woman has been changed in liberal Christianity. And there's a great deal of, of casting of, of uh, condemnation as to what other churches allow women to do. But there's very little within conservative churches of... Um, Acknowledging the sins of our fathers. There's very little in conservative circles of, of admitting that um, 
The women have not been properly treated within the churches of Jesus Christ. Those who proclaim Jesus Christ as their common head. We need to acknowledge the patriarchal narrative of history and to acknowledge that that um, narrative has been written large within the church. There have been times when women have been treated little more than property. That women had in, in society no civil rights apart from their fathers or their husbands and no personal rights apart from their fathers or their husbands. And within the church, this situation has not always been different. And women in their marriage state has been treated as the lesser partner, the one with little or no rights. As a pastor, I have witnessed and heard many horrible stories of where women's rights before God have been trampled on by pastors in his church. And I think when we look at this issue of the role of men and women in Christ, um, it doesn't do us any good to, to spend all our time focusing on a view that we do not hold, a view that is held by churches not like our own, a view to which we are unlikely to evolve or develop. But rather, it is more profitable to look at our own hearts, our own views, in light of Scripture, and to make sure that our minds and our hearts are in line with the will of God, not just in line against what we don't agree with, which only serves to solidify us in our own error if we happen to be standing in error. And many times, conservative Christianity has indeed stood and stands in error in this regard. We can look to Judaism, our ancestor, our, our forefathers truly, according to the faith, and we can see that in its day and in its writings, it was a very progressive religion. The modern women's rights movement was quite astounding in the 20th century, but I have a feeling that it was not nearly as momentous as the rights that were given to women in Israel, the right to own property, to inherit, the right to divorce, something that was withheld from most ancient cultures. Now today we have this concept that a woman has a right to her own body. I don't know that anybody who believes that God is the creator of both man and woman believes that either has a right to his or her own body, that our bodies as well as our souls, belong to the Lord our God. So modern views do go beyond that which is written. But what was written is really remarkably favorable to women. When we read the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, not only do we read very enlightened and progressive views, historically speaking, concerning the role of women in the world, but we also read of many women who were remarkably influential and impactful within the church of Jesus Christ. We mentioned that last Sunday evening, that you know, it, it, it's, it's something that we can't just get around, that Paul spent as much time greeting and thanking and praising the women in the various congregations in which he ministered as he did the men. But men and women are not viewed the same in society, 
in any society, folks. That's the reality of it, nor in Scripture. The, the problem that we're dealing with in this fallen world is that any difference in view between the sexes is interpreted as a difference in essence. That any hierarchy, for example, is equated with, with inequality. And so if, if one is to be over the other, that implies of necessity that one is superior to the other, that one is essentially better than the other. And sadly, that has been the interpretation of this issue throughout time. Whether in the old days when the society was still powerfully patriarchal and the, the commentaries talk about the weaknesses and the talkativeness of women, or in the modern day when women have become so equal as to be superior to men and we are now fed a steady diet of power women trying to redress the wrongs. But you don't redress wrongs. Wrongs that are committed cannot be redressed. They need to be removed and no longer committed. And so a cultural interpretation of this issue is, is almost unavoidable. If not for something that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. However, the fact that he said anything, either in 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy or any other letter that he may have written, shows that... Um, the view in the world is, is oftentimes the same view in the church. That hierarchy equals inequality. Jesus himself said to his disciples, You know that the rulers of the nations lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In, in other words, he was describing the paradigm of leadership in the world. And that is one of oppression. That is one of keeping the others down so that you can stay on top. And sadly, the church has often used the same tactic. In Corinth itself, Paul says that you know, there, there must be factions among you so that, so that the approved among you may be made known. In other words, it wasn't just that the people appreciated or enjoyed Cephas' preaching more than they did Paul's preaching, but everybody loved Apollos' preaching. I mean, with a name like Apollos, who wouldn't? He should have been a televangelist, right? That wasn't just the, it wasn't just personal preferences. It was actually among them people who were leading these factions so that they might put down the others. And we see that in the way they would come together for the Lord's Supper. That there was division and prejudice and oppression. James, in his letter, chastises his readers for their favoritism to the rich. Because was it not the rich, he says, who oppress you and drag you to court. You see, in the church, the world is often mirrored. But is the church to mirror the world? The church is really a paradigm shift in the world. A church, a paradigm shift, is often associated with the, the view of the planetary system that was taught by Copernicus a completely different way of looking at things. That's a paradigm shift. But all of the interpretations of men and women in their role, they have not been a paradigm shift. They've simply been a mirror of current culture. Does that make sense? So if you read Calvin, you're just simply reading the social roles of men and women 
brought into the church? Oh, there we are. We have the answer. But is it any different today? What we do today is we take the social roles of men and women, which are changed, and we just bring them into the church. And so we continue to mirror the world in the church. But that's not what we're here for. Jesus continues to say in that passage that I quoted earlier, he who would be greatest among you shall be the servant of all. You see, he introduces a complete paradigm shift with regard to leadership. That he will not lord over or oppress, but rather will be the servant of all. He who would be greatest among you shall be the least. Is it possible for the church to have order with harmony? Is it possible for the church to live according to the divine pattern and in peace? Is it possible for the church to have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who considered others to be more important than himself? Sadly, the church oftentimes, as the members of the church, just doesn't want to be different. The church wants to be like the culture around it. In fact, we're taught now in the modern church growth books that in order to draw people through our doors, we need to be more like them. That defeats the whole purpose, folks. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to inaugurate the same old thing, but rather to put in place a culture, a body, a kingdom, that was antithetical to the world, that was counter to the world in almost every single instance. So that when you look at the world and you look at the church, you should see something that is starkly different. But sadly, most of the time, it's very much the same. The key passage, I think, to Paul's view of men and women in Christ, and, and not just in the church or in the home, but in Christ, and the bedrock to our understanding of Paul's understanding, and this I think is so important because Paul seems to contradict himself in various places. For example, in one place he says, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. In another place he says, I will not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so commentators throughout history have, have wondered, what, what is it? Which Paul do we follow? We want to follow the Paul that makes everything equal? Or do we want to follow the Paul who separates things? Well, I'm going to follow the Paul who sets out the bedrock foundation of his understanding right here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of, every, of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. In your bulletin, I have a blue outline that has a little diagram. And I don't usually do diagrams. I, I think George W. Bush was president the last time I used a diagram. And before that, it might have been Ronald Reagan. I don't know. I don't, don't, don't do it often. Two things that I feel very strongly about with regard to this matter. The first is that by and large the church has failed on both sides in properly interpreting the Apostle Paul. 
And the second is, I think what he has to say is rather simple. And it's right here in one verse. Now, I've rearranged the order of his verse in this diagram. And the reason Paul puts it in the way he does, and he does this very often, is that to Paul, everything sums itself up into God. And so the consummation of every relationship is always ultimately in God. So it is Paul's manner not to start at the top and say, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. That's what he's saying. But he puts it in a different order because the whole thing redounds, revolves, resolves into the glory of God. That's Pauline theology. That, that is the purpose of the creation of man and of all the worlds, is to redound to the glory of God ultimately. So that's why he puts God is, uh, is the head of Christ last. But I'm going to put it in the, the logical order. He says God is the head of Christ Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Now, now what we hear, have here in your diagram on the left side is we have the first two persons of the Trinity. God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And on the right side, the right box, we have man. Man not as male, but man as that creature the supreme creature of God's creation, created in His image. So God created man in His image, male and female, He created Him. So what we're dealing with here is not a cultural interpretation of the social relationships between men and women, and certainly not the church reflecting those social norms. But what we are dealing with here is the image of God reflected through man, male and female. So when you look at this diagram, the purpose of the box is to show equality in essence. In ultimate being, there is no distinction between Christ the Son and God the Father. I mean, that's a fundamental principle of Christian theology is that they are equally, eternally God. That is Dei. And on the right side, we conclude, both from creation and from what Paul's saying here, that there is no fundamental, essential difference between a man and a woman. That is Imago Dei. There is no subordination, there is no inferiority, there is no lack of ability. This is called ontological equality, meaning as far as their being, God the Son and God the Father are one. And as far as their being, man the male and man the female are one, without distinction. Which means there can be no diminishing of the dignity of woman without also diminishing the dignity of Christ. If you follow Paul's logic, any oppression of the woman by the man mirrors an oppression of the son by the father, which is unthinkable. What is it that the father poured out upon the son? Love. Read John 17 to understand 
the relationship of the Son to the Father and the Father to the Son, and then come back to 1 Corinthians 11 and see that that was Paul's understanding with regard to the relationship of men and women. No difference in essence. Nonetheless, a difference in function. God is the head of Christ. Jesus, throughout his ministry, referred to himself under two He referred to himself as the Son of Man, but he referred to God most often as the one who sent me. He says, I have come not to do my will, but rather the will of my Father. That I do not speak on my own account, but what I see the Father doing, what I hear the Father saying. He subordinated himself, Philippians chapter 2. He made himself of no account, submitting himself, subordinating himself to the Father with whom he was equal. But Paul says he did not regard that equality as a thing to be grasped, but rather freely, willingly, and redemptively let go of it. Subordinating himself to the Father, that is the pattern for the subordination of women to men in Christ. The pattern that the woman has to follow is that of Jesus Christ himself. The pattern for the man is even more momentous because the man is to be patterned on the Father. The one who shares his glory with no one else but the Son. The one who who showers eternal love and grace and blessing upon the Son. The one who possesses all glory and wills that that glory be manifested to creation through the Son. This transcends culture, which is why when Jesus or Paul, when either one of them was brought into a discussion regarding men and women, they did not talk about cultural norms, but rather they went back to the beginning. They went back to the pattern properly understood, the subordination of women to man is no more derogatory of her honor and dignity than the subordination of Christ to the Father. We're not dealing with an issue here that in any way diminishes the honor, the glory, the dignity of the woman, or we would be talking about diminishing the honor and the glory and the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men need to understand that. We need to Let go of all thoughts of superiority. We need to let go of all justification for any distinction in function within the church as being based on an essential difference between the man and the woman. That men are are, are, are more intelligent. That men are are more um, even-keeled. No. I I know a, a lot of men who are not even-keeled. I would probably put myself in that category. Every time I hear something like that, I think you you go through life with your eyes shut. You must never have met any men and women. There is neither chauvinism in this, nor feminism. Neither one has, has a role in this, but rather the proper reflection of God, the Godhead, in the church on earth. And I would ask you, If this reflection is not visible in the church, where on earth will it be seen? 
Now, this also answers the question that is often put to me, what about women in government? What about women in, in schools? What about women in, in companies? To which I say, the world is not the church. The world is not called upon to reflect this particular aspect of the Godhead. The world is not called upon to make the same sacrifices as the church is to make. And so, I don't have a problem. If she were alive and running for office here in the United States, I'd vote for Margaret Thatcher. Okay, personally. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I do not think that violates biblical norms whatsoever because we're talking about the restoration of the image of God in Christ, which is to be seen in Christian marriages, Christian homes, and Christian churches. That is where the world sees the reflection of the image of God. So practically speaking, what's a woman to do? What, what can women do in the church? And if you're hoping for a list, you're going to be disappointed. As of necessity, the answer must be brief. It's not because of lack of thought or study. 2017, thought about it a couple times through the years, through the year, 25 years since I was ordained a minister of Fellowship Bible Church. So 25 years is, I don't know if that's tinfoil anniversary, what, what it is, but... You know, it's a long time. If you think that a man can be a pastor of an American church for 25 years, in the 21st century, and not have to deal with this issue, you're living in a cocoon. So it's not due to lack of thought, and there are, are definitely thoughts up here that I don't have the time to share. But the question is, will you be open to the answer? Or are you settled in your own views? If you are settled in your own views, then I would ask a further question, where does your view come from? Does it come from your culture? Does it come from a culture in the past that you wish to be your own? Or does it come from the writings of the Apostle Paul, inspired by God? Do you see yourself as a free agent, willing to do what you want? Or do you see yourself as the imago dei, the reflection of the eternal God? That'll have a massive impact on how you view this matter. So what is a woman to do? Well, certainly, much more than many conservatives will allow, including many conservatives in our church. And so I challenge our church to seriously consider what Paul has to say to his churches, including the passage that we've just read, which shows us women praying and prophesying in the church, something that is recorded in the book of Acts and alluded to in other passages. What is a woman to do? Certainly much more than many conservatives will allow, but certainly much less than many liberals permit. For myself, I hear Paul adamant regarding at least one thing, and I know this is one that many women stumble over. But we turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says uh, very firmly in verse 12, I do not allow, I will not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Teaching and leadership in the church 
belong to a class of men who are called bishops, overseers, episkopos. Paul immediately in 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins to talk about the qualifications of a bishop. Bishops are synonymous in Paul's writings and in the book of Acts with the persons known as presbyters, elders. And their function, the verb that is associated with these two men, one man, an elder who is an overseer, is poimeo, to shepherd. Teaching and authority in the church are synonymous. This is why Fellowship Bible Church has not only a plurality of elders, but a plurality of preaching elders. Because it is the preaching of God's word within the church that constitutes the authority. We have no authority on our own. We have no authority based on our degrees. Our degrees did not confer upon us our ordination. In the United States, a man can be ordained, a woman can be ordained without any academic training. Our training was simply our attempts to be better able to handle the word of truth. But the only authority that a minister of God's word has is that word itself. Thus saith the Lord. And so what is it that Paul, on the basis of the reflection of the Godhead, has forbidden to women the office of overseer, the office of elder, not the office of deacon, for the feminine is in the New Testament. In the writings of Paul, Phoebe herself is a deaconess in Cancrea. So the position of an overseer, a bishop, has been set aside for men and not for women. But Paul's moving into this topic in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is also a very important development because he is very clear, as is the rest of the New Testament, that this is not an office that is open to every single man. The difference between the two sexes as regarding this one issue within the church is really not all that great. I'll give you some numbers. They're very arbitrary. 100% of women should not be elders. 99.8% of men shouldn't be either. So the difference between the two not only is not essential, but it's not that great. And when one understands what the Scripture teaches regarding that office, let not many of you become teachers, for as such you incur a stricter judgment. When you understand what the Bible teaches concerning each individual believer having to give an account for themselves before the Lord, but the elder having to give an account also for them, then even fewer will desire. Paul says it is a noble desire, but it's as if he says, let's talk about it first. He does withhold one function in the church, clearly, from women. I ask that you not view all this through cultural lenses, whether 16th century or 21st century. Rather, consider men and women in Christ.
together the image of God, not individually, but together the image of God, being renewed, Paul says in Colossians, in the image of the one who has created them. Consider men and women as a timeless reflection of the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And may the world see this image reflected in our church and in the church of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we long to live in a manner that pleases you and reflects your glory. And we see that your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person, fully God, humbled himself and took on the form of man, submitting himself to your will on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray that that reflection of submission might govern our thinking both from the respect of you as the Father and as Christ as the Son, as we consider the roles of men and women in Christ in the church. I pray, Father, that the dignity of both, as your supreme creation, as, as your image on earth, might be something that we jealously guard and maintain. That we not allow the diminishing of the dignity and glory of either the woman or the man, nor allow either to be greater than the other, but both the same in Christ, the Imago Dei. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we navigate the world in which you have placed us, and that your church might be indeed a paradigm shift where men and women can live according to your pattern in harmony and respect and love and peace for your glory for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and for the edification of his body and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please stand this morning for what I believe is perhaps one of the most appropriate benedictions to end a year from 1 Timothy chapter 1, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.